All right. Well, if you have a copy of our confession this morning, go ahead and turn over to chapter number eight. And we'll be looking this morning at chapter number eight of Christ the Mediator, paragraph number four. Paragraph number four of chapter eight, dealing with Christ uh, the Mediator. This morning, we want to think about and consider uh, for just a few moments today, we want to consider the identity of his work. Uh, the identity of his work. Uh, As we've been studying through this particular passage, uh, we have been dealing with the realities of who Christ is and with regard to uh, his primary work uh, that's mentioned in this chapter, which is Christ the Mediator. Uh, Paragraph four is a, a chapter or a paragraph rather that reminds us uh, of what Jesus Christ has done for us. It is a, uh, I was reading it a couple of times this week, and I, each time I read it, uh, it led me to just thinking on Christ and thinking about what he has done for us. And I think you'll, you'll see that as we read this together this morning. So there in paragraph four, the confession reads this way. This office the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake which that he might discharge, he was made under the law and did perfectly fulfill it and underwent the punishment due to us, which we should have borne and suffered, being made sin and a curse for us, enduring most grievous sorrows in his soul and most painful sufferings in his body, was crucified and died and remained in the state of the dead, yet saw no corruption." On the third day he arose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered, with which he also ascended into heaven, and there sits at the right hand of his Father, making intercession, and shall return to judge men and angels at the end of the world. One of the things I think I pointed out to you last week with regard to these paragraphs, and if you have the copy of the confession that I provided for you, uh, you'll notice within that paragraph there are numbers after statements that point you to the Scripture references. And of course, this particular paragraph, you'll notice there is uh, quite a few references that are connected with each statement. Uh, We're going to touch on some of those. We may not reach them all today, but I would encourage you that throughout the week, uh, follow those numbers and follow those scripture references. So as we talk about the identity of this work and we talk about who Christ is, there's really a couple different sections we can break this paragraph down into. And uh, so I'm going to attempt to do that today. Uh, As we consider the first two phrases, and you'll see the corresponding numbers of 21 and 22, uh, these particular paragraphs uh, deal with the active and passive obedience of Christ. The active and passive obedience of Christ. Now, sometimes those phrases uh, can, can tend to confuse us a bit. They can, content, they can tend to give us a little bit of uh, maybe a misunderstanding of what we mean by active and passive. Uh, when we talk about the active obedience of Christ, again, we're talking about in his humanity primarily, uh, but we also know that his active obedience that Christ uh, accomplished when he was on this earth was the actual keeping of the law. 
his actual keeping of the law is what is referred to as his active obedience. In other words, it is the things that we could see. It's the things that we could notate. Uh, you would have never been able to find Christ at a single time in defiance or in disobedience to the law. Uh, he never disobeyed the law. Uh, he perfectly fulfilled the law. Remember, Jesus himself even said, I did not come to do away with the law, but I came to fulfill the law. And that's exactly what he did. That is part of his active obedience. When we talk about his passive obedience, uh, we're talking about the thing that we can't see so much, but we hear Jesus say it numerous times throughout the gospel. And that is that he submitted himself to the will of the Father. In all things, he was submissive to his heavenly Father's will. Now, there are a couple of passages that we see are connected uh, with these two statements. So this first one, this office the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake, which that he might discharge, he was made under the law and did perfectly fulfill it. So we see there the active and the passive obedience. That points us to a couple of passages we'll look at this morning. Uh, Psalm 40, verses 7 through 8. This is a psalm of David. And of course, David as a type of Christ throughout the Old Testament. When we see these phrases, we know that David was not just talking about himself. He was also giving us a picture of who Jesus is. And so Psalm 40, verses 7 and 8 says this. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do thy will, O my God, yea, thy law is within my heart. That also points us over to Hebrews chapter number 10, verses 5 through 10. So Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 10. And this comes within the context of Jesus Christ being the perfect sacrifice here in Hebrews 10. And you'll notice that as this is speaking of Christ, notice the language that is used here. Hebrews 10 verse 5, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Above when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, once for all. You can see the similarity in language that's used in Hebrews 5 that was read in, in Psalm 40 verses 7 and 8. You see that idea of coming to do thy will. This is a result or the, a picture of the act of the passive obedience of Christ. So we have active and passive. We have him actively keeping the law, delighting to do the law, and we see him submitting himself to the will of the Father. That also points us to John 10, verse number 18. And here's Jesus himself uh, showing us an example of how he was submitted to the will of the Father and then in his active obedience uh, was going to fulfill or complete that which his Father instructed him to do. 
John 10, verse 18, he says, No man, with regard to his life, no man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. So even in Jesus' words, he speaks about his obedience. He speaks about the fulfilling of the Father's will or the fulfillment of the law. Now, you'll note that the verse 20 or the uh, notation 22, which that he might discharge, he was made under the law. That's an important phrase here, made under the law. That points us to Galatians chapter 4, verse number 4. So Galatians 4, verse 4. I think we may have, we may have led this, uh, read this last week, Galatians 4, 4. It says, but when the fullness of the time was come, remember that we looked at that, that, that means at the appropriate hour, at the appointed time, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law. That phrase to be made under the law means to be subjected to it. In other words, it was required of him to be made under the law, to be made subjected to it. He, was, he, he became that man. He became uh, the God in human flesh. But he was subjected and was responsible to keep the law. So we see it in that fullness of time. He sent forth his son, made under the law. And then Matthew 3.15. Matthew 3.15 we see this phrase again. Again, we won't, we won't touch on all these uh, verse references, but it kind of gives us the idea here. And this, this shows us Jesus himself answering his purpose. Uh, this is at the, uh, 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 to be baptized, Jesus to be baptized of John. It says there in verse 13, John 3, uh, then come, or Matthew 3, I'm sorry. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. So again, we see the active and the passive obedience in Christ. He was perfectly obedient to all those things. Now, back in our confession, it tells us he perfectly fulfilled it and underwent the punishment due to us. Uh, that is the key to understand. Uh, we talk about this a lot here, but we talk about that because the Bible talks a lot about it. That he endured and underwent the punishment that was due to us. It should have been laid upon our backs. The stripes that were placed on him should have been the stripes that were placed on us. Notice he did that willingly and he perfectly fulfilled the law. He underwent the punishment due to us, which we should have borne and suffered. Uh, it makes uh, no qualms about the reality here that what should, have ha what should have happened is that you and I should have paid for our own sin. We should have paid for our own transgressions. But we know what it tells us. And you don't have to turn there, but Galatians 3.13 says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. So he endured what we should 
have endured ourselves. He endured that suffering. He endured all of what came with suffering on the cross and suffering as a result of sin. Isaiah 53, 6 tells us, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. So these point us to this great truth about what our justification cost our Savior. Uh, what our freedom, what our redemption cost our Lord. Uh, this was not a small price. But one of the great Uh, One of the great misunderstandings uh, is that when we see uh, the phrase, we should have been born or should have born and suffered, we often think about the physical punishment that Christ received. And we sometimes get, um, we get fixated on the actual punishments. We get fixated on the crown of thorns. We get fixated on the scourge. We get fixated on the nails. We get fixated on those things. And those are horrible things. But this next phrase is really what what kind of pulls all this together. Being made sin and a curse for us. I mean, think about the the statement there. He who knew no sin is incapable of sinning, was made sin for us, and took on the actual curse for us. Now that points us to 2 Corinthians 5.21, which is a verse that we, we quote often here because it is, it is so vitally important to keep these things in mind. When we think about the suffering and we think about what Christ went through, we know that the physical pain and agony was tremendously horrible. Uh, there is no more uh, cruel death that a person could experience. But when we read verses like 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he hath made him, that's God the Father hath made him, Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. There's some really important phrases in there. He hath made him to be sin. Now, he didn't make him a sinner. He made him pay the price for our sin. Christ was never a sinner. Christ never became actual sin. But He did in fact take our place that so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. That we might be able to have credit for the perfect fulfillment of the law that Jesus Christ did in His act of obedience. It's really quite remarkable that He became that curse for us. He who was not guilty of any sin, even in the slightest, yet he made it a way for you and I. Enduring most grievous sorrows in his soul and most painful sufferings in his body. Now this points us to three different passages here. Uh, Matthew 26, Luke 22, and then Matthew 27. I do want to look at these. Uh, Matthew 26 verses 37 through 38. And Jesus makes reference to the sorrow of his soul here. Of course, this is in the context of Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane. 
Verse 36 tells us, Then cometh Jesus with them into a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. You you notice that that expression, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Um, uh, Jesus here is not so much seen as the priest or the mediator that we're studying about, but our Lord here is seen... Uh, seeing himself and speaking of himself as being bound to the altar. He's bound to the sacrifice in which he is getting ready to voluntarily assume. Uh, he is, uh, he is uh, his utterance there, not as I will, but as thou will. Christ was not afraid to die. Uh, he's not having second thoughts. Uh, he's not asking God the Father, can you remove this? Uh, but what he was doing, what, what was making this cup so terrible for him? What was making it so uh, that he was speaking of, if, if this cup could pass from me? Uh, think about his relationship to the Father. That's really what's key to understanding what Jesus is saying here. His, his terms, oh my Father. The one part of the mystery of God is we sometimes lose sight of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. And to bear the idea and to bear the thought that he was going to be made sin and was going to, in in a number of hours after he says these words, was going to bear the punishment of man's sin. As we just read, Jesus was was to be made sin for us. He was to come under the curse for us. He was going to feel the Father's wrath on account of, of the guilt of humanity. And it would not just be a part of him that would feel this. It wouldn't just be certain aspects of it, but his entire nature. Not only would his flesh feel this, but his whole being thinking about the reality of what was getting ready to take place. He didn't shrink away from that thought. But imagine what he's saying here. It's the agonizing pains of his own soul. And that's what we see happening here. There's a, uh, this comes from a a hymn that we don't don't have in our church here, but it it comes from a hymn book entitled Psalms and Hymns for Public and Private Worship. And the hymns, a lot of those books are not named, they're just given a number. And this comes from hymn 348, and here's one of the lines in that hymn. It says, Emmanuel sunk with dreadful woe, unfelt, unknown to all below, except the Son of God in agonizing pangs of soul, drinks deep of wormwood's bitterest bowl, and sweats great drops of blood. So we do see the agony of his soul. Uh, That's what refers back to the most grievous sorrows in his soul and the most painful sufferings in his body. We'll turn over to Luke 22, verse 44. 
Luke 22, verse 44. Again, as I mentioned to you, as, as I read these and as I read this through this paragraph, so many things come flooding to your mind with uh, what, what he's done for us. And this is in the context of Luke 22 of Jesus' agony in prayer. It says in verse 39, And he came out and went, and as he went to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples also followed him. And when he was at the place, he said unto them, Pray that ye enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose up from prayer and was come to the disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow and said unto them, Why sleep ye? Rise and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. So we're, we're feeling the agony of soul here to some extent. Now I'm not sure we can fully comprehend the grievous sorrows that Christ is feeling. I'm not sure that even the words of that hymn that I read... I'm not sure that even as we read it on the printed page in the Word of God, the inspired Word, I'm not sure we fully understand the grievous sorrows of his soul. It's one of those things very hard for us to, I think, fully comprehend it. And then back, back to Matthew 27, 46. Matthew 27, 46 And we see Jesus as he cries out from the cross here. Verse 45, And from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there when they heard that, they said, this man calleth for Elias. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him drink. The rest said, Let be. Let us see whether Elias will come to save him. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. So we get a little bit of a picture here. I think just a very small picture of what Jesus was experiencing in his sorrows of the soul and experiencing as far as the sufferings in his body. So his death involved and included his entire man, the whole man. All right? That's what verse that's what phrase 26 here is. He was crucified and died and remained in the state of the dead, yet Saul no corruption. Death of the whole man. Now it's important we make mention about the death of the whole man because there actually was a death. Uh, remember, even in Jesus' day, tradition says there were many who simply believed that he was just in a deep sleep. Uh, he did not really die. But the death was required. The death for the payment of sin was a requirement. Uh, often we've, we've said, why, uh, why did Jesus have to die? The death was the requirement for the payment. The death had to have, have occurred. And it points us to Acts 13.37 as we think about this. 
um, Acts 13.37. All these, all these phrases connect us together. Acts 13.37. Um, let's go, again, let's go, a couple, let's go a couple verses previous. Again, it's hard to just take these verses one at a time. But, of course, this is... Uh, this is uh, part of Paul's sermon in Antioch, and he's, he's talking about the death and the burial and the resurrection. Um, it, he, let's start there in verse 33. It says, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again, and as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Wherefore, he saith also in another psalm, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised again saw no corruption. So we see where there is that death of the whole man, but we also know what, what 27 and 28 in our confession tell us is that there was an actual resurrection. So there was a real death of the whole man. There was an actual death that occurred. It wasn't a, uh, just a sleep. It wasn't just he was almost dead. There was a death, and then there was a resurrection. It said he was crucified, died, and remained in the state of the dead, yet saw no corruption. On the third day, he arose from the dead. Okay, that's a declarative statement. That's what Paul was writing about in 1 Corinthians 15 when we, we call this uh, one of those passages that give us a picture of the gospel. But I think even more, more importantly, uh, or on even level it may be, that it talks about the witnesses of the resurrection. In other words, there were people that actually saw him. They knew he was dead and they actually saw him in his resurrected body. It says, Moreover, brethren, 1 Corinthians 15, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins. There's the key. Christ died for our sins. The payment for sin was death. Without his death, there would have been no acceptable payment for sin. According to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. He was seen of Cephas and of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once. He was seen of James, then all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also as of one born out of time. It's important that we stand on the truth of what God's word declares, that there was an actual death and there was a resurrection. And here's another key phrase, with the same body in which he suffered. Okay, there, was no, there was no change in that body from the time he was taken off the cross and put into that tomb to the time he resurrected. The same body they put in that grave is the same body that came out. Okay, remember, there were accusations about switching of bodies. 
There were accusations even in Jesus' day that something's, something's not right here. It declares it was the same body that was taken off the cross, put in that tomb. The same body came out of there. That points us to John 20, uh, verses 25 through 27. John 20, verses 25 through 27. And this is, this is Jesus appearing before Thomas. And this is, this is key. And this is how we know that it was the same body in which he suffered. Thomas, in verse 24, one of the twelve called Didymus was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, again, his disciples were within and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. Jesus is declaring right here to us. He told Thomas, This is the actual body. I still have the scars. Here's the prints of the nails in my hands. Here's the print in my side. This was not some other body. He was standing there before them in this resurrected body. And of course, we saw and remember Thomas's response. Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus said, remember, he said something very peculiar. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. I have never seen those wounds with my own eyes. You've never seen them with your own eyes. But yet we believe. We believe, why? Because God himself declares these things to be so. It goes on to tell us that with the same body in which he suffered, with which he also ascended into heaven. This is all with the same body. This is, this is an important aspect of what's happening here. Where did he ascend? He ascended into heaven. That gives us the reference of Mark 16, 19 and Acts 1, 9 and 11. So let's look at Mark 16, 19 first. Mark ends with this declaration. So then, after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Amen. After the Lord gave them the commission, he ascends and is received up into heaven. Nothing transforms nothing changes he doesn't take on another appearance he simply is received up into heaven in the same body that he was crucified in placed in a tomb resurrected and ascended back to the right hand of the father which is where he is today and then probably what i believe to be the most clear declaration as if mark 16 is not clear enough is in Acts chapter number 1, verses 9 through 11. Gives us, not only paints this picture of what's happening, but really gives us 
in detail what they were seeing. Now, the book of Acts opens up with waiting for the promise of the Father, which is waiting for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. And it says in verse 9, And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. That the reference to he and the reference to him is a reference to Christ. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up. Now you try to paint this picture in your human mind and try to paint what's going on here. You've got them standing there. They're looking towards the heaven. And while they're looking towards the heaven, he goes up. Behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. Which also said, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you've seen him go into heaven. This same Jesus, not a changed Jesus, this same one, is coming just as you've seen him go, one day he's coming back the same way you saw him go. There's really no argument we can make with what's happening here. He ascended up into heaven and there sits at the right hand of his father making intercession. We've talked a little bit about this intercessory role of Christ the mediator and to intercede on behalf of his people. And that points us to Romans 8.34. Romans 8:34 and of course Romans 8 is one of those great chapters of scripture and Paul is reminding them that they are more than conquerors and he he says this in verse 34 of that chapter he says who is he that condemneth it is Christ that died yea rather that is risen again who is even at the right hand of God that's even at this very present hour, friends. That's right now. He is at the right hand of God who also maketh intercession for us. Where is he? He's at the right hand of God making intercession for us. He is acting still in that role of a mediator. Hebrews 9.24. Hebrews 9.24. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Again, notice that statement. To appear in the presence of God for us. That intercessory work. Part of that intercessory work is his appearance and his appearance before God is giving us access and giving us right to God. His presence there. He is there to appear in the presence of God for us. And then the final phrase of this paragraph, 
and shall return to judge men and angels at the end of the world. This day that we look forward to is the day when Jesus Christ will come again and he will be the final judge of all things. The book of Acts in Acts 10.42 declares part of this judgment and part of this responsibility that he will have. Acts 10.42, And he commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is he which was ordained of God to be the judge of quick and the dead. To him give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. This is a remarkable picture of what we see with Christ. He has spoke of Christ's person. Peter has spoken of his person. How that uh, God had anointed Jesus of Nazareth with this power and the Holy Ghost. That was the very spring of all of Christ's power was in the Holy Spirit. And you'll notice that he's been given the responsibility, ordained by the Father to be the judge. Romans 14, 9. Romans 14, 9. Again, notice the emphasis on who's doing the judging here. Romans 14, 9. For to this end, Christ both died and rose and revived that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Often that question is asked, who is, who is going to be doing the judgment when the final judgments come? According to scriptures, Jesus Christ himself will be. He will be the judge that is on the throne. He will be the judge that is seated in the judgment seat. Whether it's for the unbeliever or for the believer, he will be the one who is seated there. Then Acts 1.11. I think I said we weren't going to cover all these. I think we ended up covering most of them. This is what, this is what we just read. Uh, part of that judgment, Acts 1.11. You men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you've seen him go into heaven. When he comes again, he's coming to judge. He's not coming to offer himself as a sacrifice again. He's not coming again to even offer himself as a way of man's salvation. That time is now. That hour is now to repent and believe the gospel. It isn't when he comes again that he's going to make himself available again to trust in him. No, the call now is to repent and believe on his name today. And then 2 Peter 2, verse number 4. And this is, this is a frightening thought when we think about the judgment of God. It says, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment and spared not the world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly and delivered just lot vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. 
For that righteous man dwelling among them and seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Think about that. If God spared not the angels, he spared not the old world. Think about, think about the frightening thought it is about the judgment of God, about the judgment of who Christ is. Think about who he is in his work of mediator. Think about who he is and what he's paid and what he's done for us. Someone might say this morning, what do all these things lead us to? His active obedience, his passive obedience, the thought of his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his return. What should our response be? I think it's quite simple. Our response should be worship. Not superficial worship, but worship that thinks about really two things. Our great God and our great Savior. You know, worship comes as a result of knowing and understanding what's true. Oftentimes we, we are very heavy-handed with people who worship things that seem frivolous and uh, really <laughs> quite vain. But do you know, when you don't know the truth, you don't even know what the proper object of worship should be. When you don't know the truth of our great God, when you don't know the truth of our great Savior, you don't know where worship ought to be directed. But God, in His understanding of mankind, made man with a desire to worship. Every single human being who's ever lived on this planet, whoever will live on this planet, has an inward desire to worship. God's given that man that desire to worship. Every person who is even alive today is worshiping something or someone. Someone that tells you, I don't worship anything. We all worship something. But we who know the truth, we worship based upon our knowledge of God. Paragraphs like this in our confession remind us of the truth of what it required to bring us to faith, what it required to bring us to conversion and to salvation. It reminds us of the the awful price for sin that Christ paid for us. It reminds us that there is hope even in a world that seems hopeless. This is not the time, nor the days, nor the hours to throw your hands up in despair and to quit. This is no need to be down in the mouth and saying, we're in big trouble. No, we know the truth. The same God and great Savior that you worshipped two months ago should be the same God and great Savior you worship today, no matter what happens tomorrow or the day after that or ten years from now, because He never changes. Nothing in this world has changed our true object of worship. Nothing that happens on this planet ought to change our attitude towards God. This is not even a setback. This is not even a defeat. There's a sovereign God who's in control of it all. Nothing has changed for us. I spoke to the 4th through 6th graders this past Thursday during our chapel time at the school. And I was given the subject of teaching on Daniel. They've been studying about how God is in control. And 
I reminded them that when King Darius gave Daniel the command that he could no longer worship his God, and that he would have to worship only King Darius, Daniel didn't change anything. He kept praying three, day, three times a day. He kept looking towards Jerusalem and praying. The command was, Daniel, if you keep doing this, you're going to get thrown in a den of lions. Now, we all heard the story growing up, probably in our Sunday school classes, about the den of lions, and probably, sadly, our understanding of it was probably about an inch deep. And the reality of what Daniel was confidently doing, his emphasis was not, how do I defy the king? His emphasis was on, I know my God. And when you put me in that den of lions, O king, if God wants me gone, then those lions, they'll consume me. But my God is greater, and if he wants to stop the mouths of those lions, he'll stop them. And you keep reading the narrative. I won't give you all the details, but you keep reading the narrative. And guess who didn't sleep well that night? The king didn't. It was the king that was restless. It was the king that didn't know what to do because the king was the one, number one, he knew Daniel really didn't belong in there. But even in a sense, he knew that his God, because Daniel was so faithful to that God, he said that God must really be faithful that you put all that confidence and all that trust in him. Daniel worshiped God. He didn't change anything. Nothing that's happened over the last few days ought to change anything with who you are in God. It shouldn't even change your thinking. You simply keep doing and going forward and pressing forward for the God and continue to worship Him. Because no matter what the world tells you, God has not lost a corner of control. <laughs> Matter of fact, if you believe the Bible, this is all of his doing. Human, humanly speaking, this doesn't make sense. God is like, this is all of my doing. Somehow we got to come to the understanding that God only does what ultimately brings glory to him. Now you try to figure that out in our world today. How can what we're seeing bring glory to him? You know what it does? When we continue to see the depravity and the wickedness of man, we keep crying out, what a God, what a Savior. Our worship doesn't change. Paragraph 4 reminds us that God is still on the throne and God is still in complete and total control. And let's worship him for what he's already done for us. All right?